When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome back to another podcast. This one, the Pull Up Traitlin podcast, where Trey and Caitlin, my dear friends, pull up and we talk about basketball. Today, we wanted to talk about the hypothetical offensive situation that the Raptors are kind of forming to enter the regular season with. A wing-led offense wherein both wings, Scotty and Pascal, are not known as shooters, be it catch and shoot or pull up. And the difficulties and unique offensive environment that will create. Um, Caitlin, for what it's worth, in my opinion, is the best basketball writer in the world. Um, you can find players and coaches who read and like my work. Uh, it'll be a lot easier to find players and coaches who read and like her work, though, and 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 more of them. Um, she is stamped by NBA players, coaches fans, analysts, etc. She is the best we have. And she's here to talk with Trey and I about everything I just laid out before. Caitlin, you've been watching a lot of the Raptors to prepare for this, which of course I thank you very much. But how are you doing? I'm doing well. Happy to be back on here. Happy that the Raptors Republic uh, fan base continues to put up with me through multiple episodes of the show. Excited to talk about spacing, differentiating between the difference between spacing and positioning, which are two very different things. I did once write a very in-depth article about spacing for 538. So maybe I'll draw back from that. The illusion of spacing. Also, like, what do people respond to? Percentages or aesthetics? And, like, reputation for shooting, all that kind of stuff. Linked in the bio if anyone wants to read it. It's tremendous. Um, her muse for that piece, Eric Gordon, I believe. The wonderful, our, our chubby-faced brother. Big shout out to Eric Gordon. Trey, <laughs> You're also here to talk, as you often are. I've kind of just abandoned the Raptors weekly podcast format. I just like talking to you so much, so that's what we do instead. How are you? I'm, I'm doing good. As a fellow chubby-faced brother, I'm, I'm happy to talk about wing-led offense and hopefully some Eric Gordon also. Chubby-faced men are up. Okay, <laughs> let's set the stage. The Raptors, as I said, are about to have an offense that is ideally because of A, the best player on the team by far is Pascal Siakam. The future of the team has to be, at least in large part, attributed to Scotty Barnes, his development, his usage, the looming aspects of both. And those guys, with Fred Van Vliet leaving, the team, in flux to some degree, have to get a ton, a ton, a ton of possessions. We're still talking about Pascal getting more than Scotty, but Scotty is a guy who, the last time Caitlin was on this podcast, you know, he's the author of his own usage. He has to figure out how he gets, you know, his own points. He has to figure out, as an off-ball player a lot of the time, how to impact the game. And this is kind of supplemented by him having some opportunities to work on ball. And those opportunities have gone mostly bad so far in his career. He doesn't have the skill set or attributes that are typically attached to, like, on-ball creators. He succeeds sometimes but he does it in a unique, way, a unique way. If you want to know about that, you can go read one of my, I watched every Scotty possession pieces that I've done over the last two years. Basically everything is laid out in there. That's the framework. Caitlin, first thing I want to ask you, can you think of another offense that would have, would be led by the same things as this Raptors offense is apparently going to be led by in the past like 15 years? I mean, the closest, and it's not even comparable, but the closest you'd have to look at right now is probably the Clippers just because it's Kawhi and Paul George, and they don't really play with a point guard. And it's kind of like a cold, dead dribbling machine a lot of the time. Well, the good news is that Kawhi Leonard is 
and inc- well, at his best is an incredible pull-up jump shooter. Somebody we've seen Raptors fans will have seen him make, you know, clutch pull-up three-point jumpers over Joel Embiid in the, you know, in in the Eastern Conference semifinals, for example, over Giannis, over guys like well, it's not it's not as exciting to say like Kevon Looney in a switch in the finals as it is for Giannis and Embiid, but he he's tremendous. Paul George is one of the best shooting wings of all time. You could go to another finals team, the Boston Celtics of this past year who it's Marcus Smart's playmaking, I think, is underrated. And he isn't strictly an off-ball player, even though he does a lot of that. But once again, Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum both have quite prolific pull-up games. They do things worse than Pascal, for sure. They do some things worse than Scotty, particularly some of the, you know, bash, bash, grab type of game. And, and I don't think Kawhi, Pascal, Jalen, Jason, or Paul George, any of them are better have more passing talent than Scotty, for example, but there's not a lot of shooting. And then to exacerbate that, there is a center, Jakob Pertl, who doesn't shoot a lick. It's not even that, you know, like, oh, he doesn't shoot that well. We're trying to see if teams will respond to him. He's going to put some shots up. It's like, no, he's not going to do anything outside the free throw line besides initiate like these little get actions and like dribble handoffs, Chicago, whatever. Um, No gravity either. There's going to be guys in the paint. I'll spell it out quickly. Or actually, let's Trey. I want to hear your positives. What do you what what unique aspects of that type of lineup are you expecting? And, and you can draw on what we've seen in the past as well. I think like the lowest hanging fruit would be some of the the positive benefit. With Jakob here for a full season, you're I probably you're probably going to see the positive benefits of them just getting tons of offensive rebounds just simply because of the the size of the team. That didn't really bode as well. At, um, last year compared to the the previous season, but with a true center, that should happen. When with the amount of size and Jakob's actual ability to finish those shots, comparative to like a Coloco or Precious earlier in the season, we're probably going to see us converting more second chance opportunities. From from outside of that, I think one of the positive things that. I've seen with this group is that Pascal and Scotty both play off of each other fairly well. And some of the high low stuff that they can put other big combinations or afford big combinations in should allow them to work off of each other and be able to score in a, in a, in an efficient fashion. I think those are probably the two easiest benefits. And then also I think OG will just become, um, such a strong decoy. So I think big win for, for him in the sense that he's someone is going to have to dribble the ball a lot more with Fred Gunn and him being a decoy and kind of being their, their probably their best shooter within their lineup offers him the opportunity to, to get more touches, whether that's um, the, the type of touches he wants. I, I think that efficiency will, his usage will go up. Okay, so we'll use a lineup with 129 possessions logged. It is the Raptors' projected starting lineup for next season. Gary Trent Jr., uh, OG Ananobi, Scotty Barnes, Pascal Siakam, Jakob Pertl. I think there is a slim, slim chance that Dennis Schroeder could end up starting. I don't think that's going to be the case, but I think there is a possibility that that happens. But the lineup I just mentioned, 129 possessions, which isn't a ton, but is you can start looking at it and start saying, hmm, what's happening here, especially in the shooting frequency allowed. So the big thing is defensively, the Raptors are going to be good next year. They have a lot of size. They have, you know, capable defenders. A lot of those guys have a history of being good, be it at the point of attack or in rotation. And so that lineup was 76 percentile defensively. As far as defensive rating goes, they turned opponents over a decent amount of time. They rebounded the ball really well. They closed up possessions. They didn't foul and they collapsed with their length extremely well to make sure that a lot of teams didn't get looks at the rim. And so what happened was they weren't an elite defensive team because they had trouble tracking shooters alongside the perimeter. And so basically that meant that that defense allowed like around like 45 to 48% on threes. And so they had trouble with relocation, uh, particularly around like the pump, put the dribble into the space. The guys start rotating and shaping up around the guy on ball and the Raptors wing players who are really good at, you know, making rotations towards the ball are starting to lose guards on the back end. Really good shooting guards. That was the downfall. 
But if as far as just like playing the percentages, they did a fantastic job of protecting the paint, closing out possessions, turning guys over. That's great. Offensively, this was one of the worst high volume uh, lineups offensively in the whole of the NBA. Six percentile offensive rating of 100.8. They shot 31% from three. They shot 23.6% from the mid range and they took an insanely high amount of mid-range shots. This is kind of where you start looking at what Trey said, the ability to play off of one another, Scotty and Pascal, you could look to an early game against Miami in this season where that's a possibility and that works and they get to play in space, especially against the zone. But Jakob Pertl being out there, who is absolutely necessary for the defense, means that his guy just sits around the edge of the paint, ready to rotate over and gum things up. And that can not only happen with Jakob's guy, but that can especially happen with Scotty's guy as well. That can happen with Pascal's guy to some degree too. Gary and OG's gravity will be obviously like one of the most important things, but it can't carry a five-man lineup. All of this, and they played a bunch in transition, by the way, inefficient in transition. Once again, largely because they don't have a ton of shooting out there. You need to widen the floor to create driving lanes or passing lanes to guys who are kind of, you know, creating rim pressure with their cuts to the rim in transition. I'm saying a lot of things. Basically, the only thing that that lineup did, 6th percentile, 100.8 offensive rating, they didn't turn the ball over very often. They dribbled a lot. They took a lot of mid-range jumpers. They couldn't get to the rim. They shot like 70% okay at the rim when they got there. It's just bad. It's all very bad. Caitlin... You're here to fix them. What do you want to see this Raptors team run to turn one of the worst offenses by the numbers into something salvageable so that they can rely on their really great defense and then manage to score points on the other end? Big question. Right, so I, yeah, so I think looking back when you asked me about those teams and I said the Clippers, like I do have experience watching Paul George before he went to the Thunder and before he went to L.A., and I think he has one of the most unprecedented turnarounds in, as far as his handle of any player I can think of. So when he was playing for the Pacers, like literally Frank Vogel had a rule that if he split a screen and lost lost the ball splitting it, he could not do it again. You get one try because his handle was so high and loose. Now when you watched him, like when he was borderline an MVP candidate at OKC, he's like snaking around screens and practically making a U-turn to get back to the three-point line. That was not going to happen in Indiana. To the point where, you know, Ty Lue feels comfortable with him being an initiator in the sense of he's the first person triggering an action against a set defense and, and it feels okay. So if we look at Scotty Barnes, like if you don't have a lot of spacing on the court, and what I mean by spacing is there's an attachment to shooting with that. It's how big the area of how much defenders have to cover, not the positioning of players. You have to have somebody with a handle to navigate that space. And I don't necessarily think that's how I would describe Scotty Barnes. I watched all of his picks with Jakob Pertl, and I'll ask you because you guys have both seen him. Most of those picks as the season went on, it was typically the coverage was under to switch. So his defender's going under, and then they're switching the big on to Scotty. Did you see him with his handle do anything to evade the under or force his defender to go over? Just with his handle, and that's it, not schematically. I think the most creative Scotty gets with his handle is on the wing when he has an empty side and he starts trying stuff out. As far as like in traffic or contested air, contested space at a screen, he's not going to manipulate a defender to do anything with his handle. Um, that just, to me, and, and I'm also re-watching every single Scotty initiation possession currently. I think I'll have a piece out in August maybe. It's a lot to watch. But I just haven't seen anything like that. How about you, Trey? Yeah, I think usually when the switch goes under, it usually leads to a Scotty pickup, and then his his next action is to then lead into a DHO and ending his usage, or hopefully they react to the DHO. Then that allows him to to then feed into Yaka. But him personally, like his handle, usually doesn't manipulate anyone. If anything, when he does drive on the under, it's usually shoulder into big. Hopefully that creates space, and then he can score. Yeah, because the only thing that I saw him do once or twice is if his if he started to notice that his defender was going under, he might use a spin move and go away from it. I saw that maybe like three times. So like there has to be 
a delineation between the use of the term point Scotty, because, you know, if you watch TJ McConnell, his defender ducks under all the time, but TJ McConnell has a very underrated handle in that he finds a way to make himself a threat. So he might attack, fake a drive, fake the reject so that his defender then has to go over the screen. And then he's engaging the big to step up toward him, making a drop pass to the roller. Like Scotty Barnes isn't going to do that. So you have to find ways, especially if you're going to use any type of ball screen for him, how are you going to make that under somewhat of a threat and still get flow into the offense? Because to me, he's somebody who's more, and I know that Darko's used the 0.5 second reference that we talked about on the pod with Evan, but he's almost somebody who benefits from like a two second pause in a good way because he scans and sees the floor and processes the floor so well. So how can you get him into the role out of that under where, People are moving, and then he's going into a handoff, like Trey just said. So, if it were me personally, picture this: I would have, I would have him using a middle screen with with Jakob, and then when that under happens, you weaponize it. So, if you can envision like Pascal on the ball side wing and Grady or Gary Trent in that same corner, when that under happens, you're going to cut Pascal at the forty five immediately. So, you might get him on that cut, but probably not. It's more so a method of creating a weaponization so that when Grady or Gary Trent comes up out of that corner towards Scotty, you're punishing the low man for preparing to tag Pirtle. And then also the person that ducks under that screen isn't going to be in position to affect that pitch because you're going to pitch it ahead, which I think Scotty's capable of doing. So for me, if it's an initiated offense with Scotty Barnes, you want to be using him more as what you started off saying, like a connector hub that can use, you know, like we mentioned on the other podcasts, finding Gary Trent Jr., finding Grady in ways where you're still getting the offense moving, but the under then becomes a weapon for you, not something that he has to try to handle around with his dribble. Okay, basically, so it's it's a means to create space to get into two-man actions a lot of the time. And right. like Pascal being there, you know teams are going to go under anyway if you're going to that side. You might as well cut with purpose to try and, if they're stepping up at all, Scotty can capably and responsibly make that pass. That's also something that I wonder they might try a lot more of this year with Scotty possessions is like, don't worry about landing a screen, just slip like a lot of slips, um, whether it's like, you know, not, not ghosting out to the perimeter, but a lot of the things that Scotty is in, he isn't particularly creative. So you don't want the screen to stay there to be like this, you know, this obstacle that he can dance around and, and get guys to like, establish different angles that he can attack it's he's really tall he makes really quick decisions when guys are slipping to the rim and he's a really precise passer to hit very small windows and and he's willing to try it slips might be something we see a lot more this year and i know that might be kind of running against what Jakob has been doing for a lot of his career like laying good screens but that is one way to also weaponize his passing um scotty off ball we talked about you know scotty on ball but that also if you're making pascal a guy who's like okay you cut during this play like this is the read they go under we're going to do ball side and now pascal's going to make his cut to the rim and then you're kind of putting pascal in a similar position i guess to what scotty was in last year and pascal is an all nba player over the past couple years who is looking to make his max max contract by making another all nba team this season provided that no uh extension is signed which i don't think it will be what do you do with pascal who as you said one time on the podcast um gets into spots on the defense like sliding a piece of paper under a door he is a guy who not like paul george in the fluidity of it but a guy who with his body his unique way of moving around and a pretty solid handle against pressure is a guy who can kind of dribble around those tight areas. How are you trying to use Pascal in this offense? I think it has to be somewhat a game of chess. When Trey earlier said that OG has to be a decoy, this is one of the problems that comes in and, and giving all of these people what they want and need. Because I think there's ways to get Pascal more driving space but you have to think about, I have to sacrifice space in this area to gain it in another. So again, picture this. <laughs> if, if, if you're using like Gary Trent Jr. or Grady in a stagger away, so just two staggered picks in the weak side corner and they're coming toward the ball and Pascal has it, 
a lot of times there's teams, I mean, we can use OKC again, that the only reason you're doing that is to create an isolation for the ball handler. So when Paul George was at Oklahoma City, they would run Paul George off those staggered picks just to create a brief moment where those people are occupied on that side of the floor and Russell Westbrook's attacking the rim. Now, the question you have to ask is, do you want somebody in the ball side corner or do you not? So if you have OG in the ball side corner and Pascal is going to use that as a moment to create an isolation with offense, not an isolation because the offense broke down. I think the better solution is to move OG at the same time as that person's coming off the stagger. So are you going to get a kick out if somebody helps on Pascal's drive? No, you're not going to get that three from OG on an OB, but you're clearing that stunt out. So he has even more room to stretch his legs and space and, you know, cook his defender as he's known to do and be able to get to the rim. So I think you're looking at things like that, but then look at what I just did. OG's a chess piece and Scotty Barnes is a screener on the weak side of the floor. That's what they're doing. And that's kind of the dynamic between these two things. You're either using Scotty Barnes and Pascal, as what you said, an all NBA caliber type players being used as a cutter to redistribute and use continuous spacing or you're putting Pascal on ball and Scotty has to be a continuous screener. And in both cases, you're just pretty much moving OG to the weak side corner during these actions. Right. And this also is kind of, as Trey said, these guys can exist harmoniously and work off of each other's skill sets if there's more spacing around the floor. But the fact that the center is, and this is why it was important to mention that despite that lineup last season, shooting, I think, 70.6% at the rim, that's a decent enough percentage, but they, I think they got to the rim, you know, not very often as that lineup. And why that is, is that, okay, if you find that empty side for Pascal to like cook, he could get, he'll beat his guy a lot of the time, but he's probably going to get like nine, eight feet a lot more often than he is getting to the rim. The only way for Pascal to get to the rim really is if he takes his guy there with him. Because if he beats him on the perimeter, the rotation is going to come. And so what happened with this lineup, again, shooting 31% from three, 23.6% from the mid-range, is it's very difficult to navigate a packed paint, especially if you don't have the, you know, the necessary shooters on the outside to punish that you know, low packed-in defense. And so that's like, you can kind of in your mind be like, okay, we're going to create this advantage. This is what's going to happen. But the defensive response against this lineup and against lineups with very little shooting in them and against initiators who don't shoot very well is typically just like clog the paint 14 feet and in roughly. You know, it's not going to be extended past the free throw line. And so then your shot diet becomes contested 12 footers, maybe like a fading eight footer and open 17 footers. And as we've seen, that's actually been Pascal Siakam's shot diet over the past you know, two years. That's really tough. He has a really tough shot diet. He's very talented. He he eats off of that. He he finds his meals, but that's also very difficult to imagine. Scotty Barnes thriving in because Scotty is a guy who this past season struggled with a lot of extra attention and especially found it difficult to navigate guys pinching in on him. That's a handle limitation a little bit. And because he's a guy who doesn't attack facing up very often, but with his back to the basket, that gives you know teams a lot more options as far as zoning up and controlling the areas as far as like paying attention to shooters off ball. It's all very difficult. Trey, we haven't gone to you in a little bit. I'm curious how you feel about all of this. Um, uh, it's not ideal, obviously. I think in terms of using Pascal, the struggles you see kind of with with um with Proto, obviously that the screen that Proto creates doesn't necessarily like necessitate like actual motion within the defense. Pascal sees two people every single time, even off of the screen, and Proto isn't converting through traffic. I think uh game against like the Bucks is a perfect example. They ran pick and rolls tons of times. Proto gets the ball, he wasn't able to finish over their length and size and that was like one of the first real signs that you said like this lineup, although the numbers are showing well, like has like clear like flaws in it. I think utilizing him, like I would say mostly within the offense, like him and Scotty's two man game have to be the core basis of it. And if you can utilize Scotty as a roller, if he which he'll need some improvement on that end, 
either the defense is going to go under on on those actions, which they probably will. When Scotty gets the ball, he needs to be able to face up and either hit Jakob with with a pass or score out of the, those actions. Like as I currently see it, I don't think Pascal is going to get the rim attempts necessary to like get to the level that he probably wants to, or or he's going to have to hit a mid range shot like at the clip that he was doing like in say like the first twenty games of the season because the teams are going to likely throw. A, a, a defender with size and leave their their rim protectors waiting for him because he's going to beat that man so they usually are letting their bigs crash in and if OG Ananobi hits shots that's that's something that they're going to live with yeah so and once again this is the tough part is that it's again it's 129 sample possession sample it's not the most a lot of lineups in the mid tier you're going to see around like 400 500 possessions. Um, something that normalizes quicker than percentages of shots made, though, is where you take the shots. And it is meaningful that, you know, it was like a 96th percentile lineup as far as how often they were taking shots in the short mid range. And once again, shooting terribly. It's because there's a lot of attention near that part of, of the court. And so I kind of want to, Gary Trent Jr., OG Ananobi, these are guys who, OG reportedly never from his mouth on camera or on, you know, audio is said, I want more of the ball. I want to do this. But Nick Nurse wrote in a book that OG Ananobi was, you know, frustrated with Fred during the, what was it, 2019-20 season in, in the bubble about Fred not giving OG the ball to bring up because OG wanted to initiate possessions. It has been reported by like seven different people, all of which are known as like responsible newsbreakers, reporters that OG is looking for more of the ball. This isn't just reported from, you know, outside like the Mark Steins, the Jake Fishers, but this is also reported by, you know, like Eric Kareen, for example, Doug Smith, Michael Grange, that OG wants more of it. Gary Trent Jr. is a guy who his first full season with the Raptors created on ball quite a bit and had, you know, an outlier shooting season as far as shooting the ball off the bounce. Came back to earth a little bit shooting the ball off the bounce the past season, but was better at working off ball, you know, in attune to the rest of the guys. How do you, you know, in the perfect world, throw egos aside, utilize these shooters, Caitlin, and then try and make the most out of two shooters on a court with five guys? I Like, I'm, I'm curious, because the Raptors when OG was injured in 2021, 22, they would run, they, they ran against like, I don't know, like a 12 game sample of teams running a ton of zone against them. And so what they did was they would flip the court and like really try and emphasize running actions specifically for Gary and for Fred. And they would run those actions in the corner because they thought that that was the best way to utilize their gravity. It would open up the rest of the floor. So you run everything around those guys running the baseline or getting to the corner. And I'm curious, how do you you use those guys, Gary and OG, especially since OG isn't really a movement shooter, to create space for the other guys to play in? Like that, that's an interesting thing to me. I mean, as far as OG wanting creation reps or initiation reps, I just don't see that happening unless it happens in hybrid lineups. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd have to really contemplate how you're going to stagger a rotation in order to accomplish that. Um, otherwise, it's like I said, you're moving him from one corner to the other. I mean, the thing that I described the last time, which when Darko did his introductory presser, I think Blake tweeted a quote about this and it caught my attention that he was talking about coaches that had influenced him. And he brought up Abrovdovich, if I can pronounce it, sorry. Um, very famous Serbian coach, coaches at Fenerbahce in Turkey. And that spacing that I described to you when we were talking about, hey, if Fred and Pirtle are running pick and roll, you always want to get two guys behind them. So you're going to be moving the other three wings around the pick and roll. And that's how you're going to get drives because you're going to play them off the corners. So if you throw the ball back and Pascal gets it, then he can drive middle or he can drive baseline. When I saw that, I was like, oh, if that's who he's inspired by, there's a really good chance that this might actually happen. And then somebody like OG Canna drive into space if he catches it there. If you're moving somebody, you know, corner drift, lifting behind the basketball. That's what you're going to gain from that. But 
that's not going to happen if the ball handler's seeing an under because you don't need to go tag out of that. Like that's the one thing that you're missing with Fred, and I don't want the fan base to get mad at me. I understand <laughs> that you're not going to pay Fred forty million dollars a year. I get it. I made that exact same point that you needed to shift more of this offense towards Scotty in some way, shape, or form. But when you don't have a pull up threat to run these types of actions, it becomes a lot harder to envision ways to involve these guys. Because even what I said when you're moving OG, if you're going to look at counters, because you're not going to get that type of play, like a stagger away entry is going to work what? Like once or twice a game? Like eventually teams are going to load up and take that away. And you can maybe envision like, oh, well, if Pirtle's the first screener, maybe he goes and screens for OG in the corner. And then OG, you know, hunts that mismatch. Maybe he gets a post up and he can duck in there. Like, okay, but now Scotty's entering the ball to him in the post. What's his defender going to do? Probably smash down on the post up. Like, as soon as you start moving these people past the initial play that you think of, like, I can come up with, like, probably five or six plays. Oh, that'll work for those five people. As soon as I start thinking, okay, but what when the defense does this? Where am I putting this next person? It falls apart pretty quickly. This is the funny thing is that Dark. a lot of people lamented, myself included, the type of offense that the Raptors have played the past couple of years. It's um, – a lot of it is unimaginative. A lot of it – didn't take advantage of a lot of the because they there were times and space where the Raptors had more shooting on the floor. Like for example, when at the end of the 2021-22 season when Precious is shooting it really well, and so there's more space for Pascal Siakam, what they did in those situations was like, okay, Pascal has more space. This just means we're gonna let him ISO more. And he did, and he scored a lot and they won games. But it wasn't really taking advantage of that space to get team-oriented offense. It was just like, we're just going to let Pascal cook. And, you know, people rightly didn't, Masai himself said he didn't like watching the team this year. And they run very clunky offense. The lineup, the offense, the personnel on the team this season dictates more clunk. Because if you don't have the ability to bring guys out into space, it means you have to bang and smash around and you have to lean on what advantages offensive rebounding. The Raptors have 140 possession sample lineup with Christian Coloco instead of Jakob Pertl. That was extremely successful. A lot of those possessions came in a two game sample though, where they won by a combined like 70 points for what it's worth against the Spurs and the Hawks. A lot of turnovers, a lot of offensive rebounds. Like we're talking 40% of their misses, they rebound. It's a big deal. Um, they didn't shoot well at the rim with those lineups either, largely because of Coloco, who struggled in that regard. This is a team that even if you want like 0.5 offense and you have all these ideals, you don't have the space to play with to make those quick decisions. The advantages, the inherent ones you have on the court, isn't going to be a guy to dance in space and then like get a step. And the low man doesn't want to come over because the guy in the corner is such a good shooter. Or it's like the guy above the break, you're worried about that second side action. And like, you don't want to be out of position to help in that regard. So it's like, okay, we're going to try and make that guy finish off of one leg at the rim. Could be Pascal, whatever. It's the Raptors are going to be bigger in the middle of the court. And that means that you cut, you rebound, and you bash dudes. And that is what they have been doing. And so what I'm curious about is like, they said they wanted change, but the roster currently, you can't lean into shooting that's not there. You can't lean into quick, because like if if the defense is settled into the paint and you're like, okay, we're going to do like 0.5 basketball, we're going to make it really quick, but the defense is not responding to a lot of the guys shooting gravity, then like a 0.5 decision doesn't actually gain you an advantage. Because if you're moving it on the perimeter, but nobody's shifting with you, that quick decision-making doesn't create a new driving line. Because if a guy's sitting off of somebody, 0.5 doesn't mean, okay, pump and go, and now I have a new driving line, which shifts the defense. Now there's you know plays to be made. It means that that guy just takes a step over because he's eight feet below you, and the driving line is the exact same, and the paint is packed the exact same way. And like that's the curiosity, is that the Raptors supposedly wanted to get away from it, but the roster currently, as much as you can preach like new wave philosophies and all this kind of stuff, it still dictates that they kind of like bash their way into advantages because that's what the you know personnel does better than the rest of the league. Like Scotty Barnes, 
He does not play like Paul George or Jason Tatum or anything like that. He doesn't have to. But he went, and Trey has cited this many times, and kind of like bashed Brook Lopez under the rim four times in a six-minute sample. That's a big deal. But that's also, like, that's isolation, bully ball, basketball. That's what we've been seeing. Pascal Siakam is a guy who can corkscrew and twist and keep a live dribble and navigate a double, find an open shooter, like, above the break or in the corner, and can manipulate the double to where they can't, they have to come deeper than they wanted to. It can't be a stunt. You got to come all the way. Now a shooter is really open. But if the guy can't shoot the ball very well, and there's only two guys on the floor who can rotate around that action, maybe that's not the guy you find on that action. It's like, how do you escape the bully ball when everything on this team says, be bullies? Trey, once again. I've been talking too much. I'm curious where you sit on the bully ball aspect. Like, uh, what bit, like making the I don't think they ever foresaw like Fred getting a max contract. I don't. I don't think anyone predicts that. But um, there is no other way to to for for them to to play because even even with even with Memphis in in a certain sense, you saw you saw more movement when like Tyus Jones was was on the court or like Luke Kennard was was on the court as well with the with the lines that they even had with two with two bigs with Adams and Jaron Jackson. Jaron Jackson had to spot up probably way more than he should have simply because like they needed to create space for for John Morant with with the Raptors, they have even less space even less options in order in order to space out and less dynamism <laughs> off the bounce than jaw, obviously. Yes, exactly. So uh, I, I think the, the big keys like for them, would just ex you would, you would hope that you would get a leap from Pascal in terms of his pull-up shooting, because he's going to have to initiate a lot more. And if that happens, that probably allows other guys to slip out more, to get more opportunities at the rim and utilizing Scotty as probably more of a DHO hub. Is I guess less bully ball like. I do like some of the stuff him and Gary did last season. Gary did did fairly well with DHOs, although not big usage on on that front. But I, I think there's like a few intricate ways that they can use. But that those are probably four minutes within a within a long period of time in an actual game for them to win. They're going to have to follow the same formula they did when they won 48 games. Rebound the hell of the ball, get second chances, turn over, turn over teams at an elite rate so that you can get into transition and score. Because in the half court, they're going to have very few options. I think, as you mentioned, Gary plus Scotty DHOs among the high volume DHO partners, I think we're fourth in efficiency. And so like, but also a lot of those possessions came prior to Jakob's arrival, yeah. which this is kind of what I want to talk about next. Jakob Pertl. He found he made more money because he got traded to the Raptors, I think, definitively. So, And Fred made more money this offseason because Jakob got traded there. Jakob became pretty, like, down the center, a pick-and-roll big man on offense. There I wrote about, you know, running Chicago action and, like, stacking that with um, Jakob, Pascal, and Fred and how that's, like, really successful. And you can turn it into, like, all these back cuts, and you can turn it into a two-man action with whoever you want, and it can settle into an isolation. It can be a lot of different things. Fred is gone now. and But largely, you know, Jakob is set a screen for Fred, catch it on the roll, finish at the bucket. Sometimes it's a short roll, too. The Raptors' best stretch of offense by the numbers this past season was after Jakob came and they gave Fred more possessions. That doesn't mean Fred is the best offensive player on the team. It just means the offensive environment was one that needed a pull-up shooter and a guy who, as Caitlin said earlier, can dictate that you get a tag. That's why OG Ananobi's shooting numbers skyrocketed after Jakob came over from the team, not because OG is suddenly like a way better shooter, but because Jakob dictates a tag, Fred VanVleet is running a pick and roll, OG is the guy in the corner, or he's running shake, and he's coming up. And there's a lot more open shots to shoot. Like offensive environment impacts people's efficiency, their shot charts, all this kind of stuff. And Jakob now loses that pick and roll partner. And the, as we mentioned, you know, prior to podcasting, Darko, when he arrived at Phoenix, even though he's written, you know, scholarly articles about the pick and roll, they ran less pick and roll. When he arrived in Memphis, 
they ran less pick and roll. The Raptors this season, if you look at the guys on the roster, they're going to run less pick and roll than they did last year. Caitlin, Yaka Pirtle, a pick and roll big man who probably isn't going to have nearly the same amount of volume in that. How are you trying to use him? Like, you know, for 28 to 32 minutes a game. Yeah, so I think you're going to have to overcomplicate the simple in the sense that like late pivots coming from one side and being a little bit more surprising and what angle you're setting the screen at more of the responsibility is going to fall on him. Cause like I said, if you're seeing unders, you're not going to be drawing tags in the same way. So you're not going to be putting defenses into the rotation where before you might just ping the ball to OG in the weak side corner when Jakob catches it on the roll, like that's somewhat out the window to a degree. And then also like you mentioned some of the two man game, if you have Scotty as the ball handler and you're running like a side pick and roll, some opponents iced that when I was watching it. Not not a ton, but some did. Scotty's interesting in that his movement skills, he like he reminds me of like a week ago I was on a long car trip and I had to switch drivers because I was about ready to fall asleep at the wheel. So I got in the passenger seat and was gonna fall asleep. <laughs> when I was adjusting the seat, like there was it wasn't power. So you didn't get to pick the angle that you were gonna be at. It was either I was totally upright or I was gonna be all the way back, and this frustrated me a lot. And that's kind of Scotty. Like he's either completely upright and scanning the floor or he's completely low and wide and trying to get into his defender. And he, he kind of hops as he dribbles. And then, so against the ice, he kind of just runs out of real estate a lot of the time. But in a sense, like if Jakob can't shoot, that almost weaponizes that a little bit more. Like pop him anyways, don't roll him. Pop him to the top of the key, throw it to Jakob popping. And when his defender's all the way back, that's going to stress that five man a lot. If what you just said was Chicago action, then Jakob immediately takes the ball out of the ice pick and pop and you give it to Pascal coming off of a screen into that, then then you're benefiting. It's another thing, like I said at the top, like you got to use that under to your advantage. You have to use the fact that nobody's going to guard Jakob Pirtle to your advantage. So it really depends on how you connect one play to the next, if that makes sense. That, no, one that, action to the next. That is, and so this stuff is like, the way we're talking about it, like, okay, how do you do this? But this stuff is very inherent to basketball. It's just like the defensive response is what kind of dictates what works and what doesn't a lot of the time. And then what helps beat that defensive response is the player's agency in those things. And so it's like, okay, what is left up to these players to do? How do you navigate this? A lot of times it's going to be a jump shot sitting right in front of them. Like that's, I think, full stop, Scotty and Pascal can help ameliorate this offense and ameliorate in the English sense, not the, not the French sense, because I think in French, it just means like improve, but ameliorate in English is like hyper-specific. It means to go from really bad to mediocre. It's not like from bad to good. And so to go from like a half court offense that is, can, was one of the worst in the league this past year. And to take that to somewhere where it's like, feasible and works and you can rely on your defense to win you a lot of games and the the turnovers and getting out in transition to supplement that what we've been seeing a lot of the past you know three four years from the raptors how do you navigate this some possessions it's just going to come down to you know above the break threes from pascal in particular and scotty to a lesser degree pascal has had one season and that's it where he shot like a decent amount on his, you know, his above the break threes. It was the 2019-20 season, his first All-NBA season, his first All-Star season. And he also shot 34% on like 2.9 pull-up threes a game as well. That's great. Like 34% on 2.9 is really, really strong. Um, that's like, it's on lower volume, but that's like better than Luca, for example. If you can do that on high volume... You can be a pick and roll engine for an offense because you will dictate defensive responses. The The difficult thing is that Pascal hasn't gone anywhere close to that in recent years. It seems like it was just a blip, but also that his catch and shoot numbers above the break have been fine, especially for who he is, how great he is at other things. But the context of the Raptors is like the guys who can shoot even a smidge have to outperform their jump shots. And the guys who can really shoot, we're going to put the whole pressure of the spacing of the offense on those guys. And I'm just like, man, I wonder what it's going to look like because I haven't seen an offense. Because even the Raptors, as we said, 
succeed at like the bash smash type of stuff, offensive rebound, extra possessions, run out and transition, bully ball, all this like bully drives, all this kind of stuff. We've seen what that looks like. And the only time the Raptors have ever been able to get into like the top half of offensive rating is when things go well for them as far as turnovers. It's not really the shot making in the half court. It's not ingenuity in that way. It's like, okay, the other stuff has gone really well. We're riding a wave of, you know, maybe a little bit of good three point shooting out when a guy spaces to the corner in a transition three, or is like Gary hitting above the break, or the classic like Pascal pitch to Fred on the left wing in transition. And that stuff isn't going to be there. The Raptors are going to have to lean even harder into these aspects of offense, despite saying they're going to change a bunch. And despite saying that, like, they want to do, like, new wave type of things, the personnel doesn't dictate. So the possibility here is this. And I'm sure people in the comments will let us know. The Raptors are going to do something that nobody here considered. We're big dummies. Um, How could you assume that they won't? There is genius sitting within, you know, Scotty, Pascal, etc. That will transcend these limitations, both as, like, skill and decision-making. I hope that's correct. Like I really do. That would be cool because it would be it would be some of the most unique basketball we've seen in like the past decade. Just based on skill sets, there isn't really a comparison to how the Raptors are constructed right now to like genuinely, I looked into it. It's going to be really hard to find a comparison. Even the one that Caitlin brought up is like two of the best shooting wings over the past decade and Pascal and and they're both going to the Hall of Fame by the way. And Pascal and Scotty are not yet you know, haven't made Hall of Fame resumes, but also they don't shoot like those guys. It's all sitting up in the air. Are we, are, are we missing anything? Like, I'm, I'm curious. They need to be like super proactive on cuts. They need to time things extremely well. They need to be super, super disciplined. They need to rebound the hell out of the ball and they need to push as much as possible, which Scotty is really good at and Pascal is really good at. But are we missing anything, an advantage that they can take care of? Like I, you know, the floor's open. Trey, I don't tell I don't, me. I don't think there's an advantage open, but I, I think potentially they're going that that lineup's going to play less together than maybe we anticipate, and probably maybe only the start of quarters and and closing games. And then you have Jakobs in other lineups occupying the space that Scotty would as a dribble off a dribble handoff handler at the nail hitting cutters, probably paired with one of OG or Pascal off the bench and Scotty's paired with another rotation lineup. And then that's how they find unison within the team. But like together in the same space, I, I think that they're going to have to be a top five defense in order to really warrant them sharing tons of minutes together. So like the Knicks, where the Knicks starting lineup has been pretty, un- and you know, Caitlin knows a lot about the Knicks. It's been pretty underwhelming for some time. But their bench wins them a ton of minutes. Do we think that this is a possibility? Because like maybe it's Otto Porter Jr. will be healthy and shoot the ball really well. Historically, he has. He's like he's a super super strong bench player when healthy. Um, maybe you get a good shooting season from Precious. Maybe like some things pop off, but it's possible that the bench has significantly more spacing and can weaponize like guys on the move in that spacing better than the the starting lineup can, which I think is, and Caitlin, I'll ask you to correct me if I'm wrong, somewhat similar to how the Knicks succeeded with their bench lineups as well. They push pace more. Yeah. Like when when quickly and in, in the games when top and played, it's a lot more of a pace scheme for them. I mean, if I'm being honest, sometimes part of the Knicks problem is, and like I know this in part because I just had to watch a ton of it to write about Obi Toppin, the structure of their offense doesn't always make sense. There's some certain plays like that with Nick Nurse too. Like if I'm being honest, you can look at him and be like, hey, a nip tuck here and move that guy here. And and that that play works better now. Sometimes that's that's the issue with the Knicks starting lineup. It's like, why why are you stationing two people on the strong side when then the help wouldn't be able to come? Like that's that's more in depth than I need to explain right now. But like, I guess what you're saying there with Otto Porter and depending upon how you stagger people, if Grady's coming off the bench as well, like it reminds me a little bit because I'm going to relate everything to the Pacers is what I said on the prior podcast that like when I'm watching Sabonis before that trade deadline and it became evident that, hey, the Pacers have to, they can't continue on the same course. It was in part because 
they had started that season and Sabonis was not the fulcrum of the offense. They were trying to run a more egalitarian scheme and getting other people involved. And it's like, okay, he's got to be the hub. Like you got to go back to him. And then once they went back to him, it's like, oh yeah, we have no shooting. And Chris Paul's looking at our bench and saying they can't effing shoot. Step back. And when that happened, it's like, He's drawing double teams. He's trying to run handoffs. But if you're handing off to somebody who can't make a shot, it doesn't really make a difference. So somebody asked me that, like, what was the difference when he went to the Kings? It was like watching him do that with the Pacers was like watching a fountain with a burned out pump. Watching him do the same thing with the Kings, the water's turned on. And it's like, oh, it wasn't actually a problem with the structure of the offense. It was a problem with the pieces around him. You can run a handoff centric offense if you have, you know, who Grady Dick being able to zoom off of it and actually commanding attention there. Or if, you know, Scotty draws an extra body because he is so physical and he can draw and kick. It looks a lot different than just saying like, oh, this is really clunky bully ball. Like suddenly it doesn't look so clunky, if that makes sense. And I think that might be possible if you're staggering Scotty with certain bench lineups to have more of that look than what's going to be possible with your starting lineup. But then it goes back to the sense that if you can't play your best players at the same time and achieve those goals, what are you doing here? That's, that's the tough part because it's, it makes a lot more sense if you bring a shooter in for Jakob and you lean really hard into like, I, I did a, I've written a ton about it. I've done videos breaking it down, but like Scotty is one of the best passers in the world. The assists don't reflect that, but I think the advantage is ad, advantage the assists and the sheer amount of opportunities he creates for his teammates in those, you know, fewer opportunities really spells out that he makes a lot out of not so much a lot of the time as a passer, but he did that a lot less with Jakob on the floor. And that's that's tough. But also Jakob is completely imperative to succeeding defensively. And it is like, okay, we have a ton of talent, a five-man unit as far as like standing across the league of Scotty, Pascal, Jakob, OG, and Gary is pretty good. Those guys are considered really well by other players, by front offices, by like fans. But those five guys together is a mismatch of, you know, skills and attributes that are really tough to make work and need to be like run through with a fine-tuned comb, as you said placing certain guys here. And that's not really a free flowing offense. That's like, okay, we really need to maximize and do like the, the Dallas Mavericks thing of you go to the practice court and there are quadrants set out. And it's like, this guy has to be here because we have to drag this guy to here because Pascal is going to come to the 45 extended. And if a guy is even two feet farther, like to the left than to the right, that means something for the offense we're running. It's not, it's not smooth. It's like very clinical and you have to like work for the advantages you get. And that to me is very difficult. I don't, I don't know how it's going to look, but the Raptors like they'll, they'll give teams hell because they have been the past couple of years. Their defense will be good. They can play a more conservative style. This, you know, as they had been from the trade deadline on, they will be a very good defense. I think that's just like one of the easiest things to see. They have the personnel to do it, but offensively, yeah, it's very difficult to imagine why or how it would look really good. I'm as far as like half court stuff, and we'll go by cleaning the get the glass. What do you guys think the chances are that the Raptors are like a a top fifteen or actually even top twenty half court offense this season? I'll start with you, Trey. Um, I'm gonna be optimistic and say thirty five percent chance. 35%. Caitlin? Very low. Yeah. they Well, they haven't been yeah. like the past couple of years. And that, I mean, you said that right there about Pirtle and Scotty is it's not even just about the spacing. It's about what the matchups are. Because when Scotty was being used as a hub in that game against the Pacers, when Miles Turner was playing way back off of him, as the Pacers tend to do against when bigs have or non-shooting threats, Miles Turner was guarding Scotty. He wasn't guarding Pirtle. So, like, you need that space. Like, that was to the Raptors' benefit in that game because you were allowing teams to just play right downhill with their shooter. A game they still lost, by the way. The starters did not lose those minutes. They lost those minutes because the bench absolutely obliterated them. The Pacers lost against Toronto starters. That that game was a really great example of, like, 
you st- that game is meaningful because it showed Scotty's brilliance. As the team, it didn't mean much, but like for Scotty to figure out that defense really quickly was like, okay, this is great. But then you trade for a big man who's going to be used in a lot of the same situations and scenarios. And it's like, hmm. Tough. And this is this is meaningful for all three of them because who Pascal gets guarded by post and after Pirtle is going to be different than what it was at the beginning of the season. I would venture a very big guess that he's not getting the same types of matchups because even when Trey mentioned the two-man game earlier, like ideally you would want your two most promising players to be involved at the same time. But like when I was watching the empty side pick and rolls between Scotty and Pascal, like teams are just switching it. So that like there's there's some inherent benefit to Scotty screening for Pascal because Scotty's going to be defended a lot of times by the team's worst defender. So like you might be playing the Lakers and maybe D'Angelo Russell's guarding Scotty and now Pascal gets that on a switch. If it's the reverse of that and Scotty's being defended by a wing defender, now you're just bringing or I mean Pascal's being defended by a wing defender, now you're just bringing that guy to Scotty. Like so you kind of have to ask like who's screening for Pascal Siakam to bring an advantage a lot of the time because it's not Fred anymore. Like you don't, you're not getting that same bully ball advantage because you don't have a good guard screener to screen for Pascal Siakam. If it's Dennis Schroeder, like he screened a lot for LeBron against the Nuggets to get LeBron Jamal Murray. That was a frequent part of their offense. But if Schroeder leaks out, slips into space as a ghost screener, who cares? Like that- somebody might care if Fred slips out into space. You might, you might draw a weak side defender. Like if, if there's a moment of hesitation and both people commit to Pascal on the ball and Fred slips out, you might draw somebody from the corner to go commit to Fred and then make a quick swing pass to Gary in the corner. If if Schroeder comes and screens for Pascal Siakam and he leaks out into space and two people are on Siakam, who is going to care? And and the tough part is like you could do what they have done is Gary. And that works. Gary is like Gary's not a good screener, but he's a good ghoster and, yeah. and he can shoot on the move, especially like gather get set the the typical footwork that accompanies you know catching off of a ghost screen but the thing is like if he's one of two shooters on the floor this is again like the micromanaging where do you put og because if it's scotty in the corner for example then that guy's just going to pinch in and the initial like okay i have the lane that pascal gets because they're trying to buffer at the point of attack for a ghost screen there's a guy playing goalie in the lane if it's og then like he's open but that means that, of course, you've stacked OG and Gary on the same side of the floor. And in that case, maybe the defense is shifting over to that side anyway. And then so it becomes not about like the advantage gained at the point of attack, but it becomes about like where are Gary and OG moving after that guy plays goalie? And like if the defense is shifted, are you running something on like are you doing like a pin in on the weak side or something like that? Like this, this is where all the stuff is because it's so hard to draw that initial advantage when teams are just going to be sitting in the paint and you don't have the requisite pull-up shooting, particularly from three to play the numbers game and like drive good offense. A lot of questions. One of the most interesting offenses in the NBA, I think, next season. It's going to, if this team stays as constructed, I think it's going to be like so interesting to watch. I but I I guess the question I asked I don't expect them to be like a top twenty half court offense. If they were, hell yeah, that means they're doing like a lot of really interesting stuff. That means they're succeeding at things with their size a ton and like doing a fantastic job of it. And it means they're also succeeding at some things that like blow your mind a little bit. And also they're just probably shooting better than expected too. It's going to be a hell of a season if this team stays as constructed because it's there just isn't an, off, an offense led by these types of players as far as I can remember. And even if there ever was, you know, it's in a different league context where the three-pointer wasn't as important. Like the Pistons, for example, is like, was Chauncey the leader? For some games he was. Was it Rashid? For some games he was. Like Tayshaun Prince, whatever, right? But it's like it's a different context where – these guys doing some things were outliers at that point, but wouldn't be outliers in this NBA today. It's just like, yeah, I think we see things we haven't seen before. How, what's it, what's the what's the likelihood according to you guys for that, Caitlin? On the you know, hey, I haven't seen this before. What what do you think the chances are of that? I don't know. Do I get to sit down and talk X's and O's with Darko and and pick his brain and figure out what his plans are? That was that was like my Hollywood sequence in uh, summer league was 
I talked to Jama and then I was talking to Stefano and I told you this the other day, but then I sat down like at the baseline and then it was like, okay, I was talking to Coloco and then Jose Alvarado for whatever reason came up and dabbed me. And then uh, Darko came up and we talked a little bit and then uh, Eric Curry came up and we talked a little bit and it was just like, I was like, I just sat here and all these people came by. If the camera had been trained on me, but Luckily, Trey, are you part of an entourage? Like, is this just a famous person that we're sitting that. here don't talking to? I will that. say that's ridiculous. He got stopped many times. You just told a story about how many people. No, no, no. I, what I was saying was that <laughs> it's like that wasn't real. That was just like a small pocket of time. It was fake. It, I just happened to be sitting in the right place. Anybody else could have been sitting there, and you would have been the guy getting. The I app. didn't know that you and Jose Alvarado were besties. This is new information for me. I didn't know either, but he gave me a look. And I looked at him too, and he was like, "Hey, what's going on?" I was like, oh, "Not much." Um, I did talk to him when he was in Toronto, but I doubt he remembers me from that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I got to talk to Darko about some of this. Darko, how the hell are you going to make this work? That's well, I, I did ask him that actually. Um, no response yet, so we'll see. I'll have many questions. They loom large. Uh, any final thoughts on this offense? Trey, Caitlin, we'll we'll start with you, Trey. Um, ideally, this isn't the team that they start with at the beginning of the season, but if it, but if it is, I uh, I think both Scotty and Pascal are going to be forced to try things that they probably shouldn't be, and I'm optimistically hoping that at like Scott in Scotty's perspective that he's going to be forced to face up in a lot of situations a lot more and that will lead to more development and ideally in the season in the next few seasons or later in that particular year that you're going to see some positive progression and something that like he really needs to improve on and that's probably the swing in whether he's going to hit like that all-star tier of player that's that's a good point and also like a scotty leap with handle or with the jump yeah. shot does simplify a lot of this However, I didn't see – I've watched a lot of him through both years, cataloged every possession through both years. There's no meaningful jump as a shooter from year one to year two or as a handler from year one to year two. He got better at making reads on the floor. I think there were steps made defensively, and like, like he was a better player. But as far as like initiating possessions, uh, I don't think that the skill sets that typically dictate success were improved upon. Um, so he's not really on that trajectory, but he certainly could be just one off season of work for a guy who's as talented as he is. It simplifies a lot of things would be really cool. Caitlin, any thoughts? If nothing else, it's a fact finding mission. That's what the Raptors have been for like three years. Well, one way or the other, you're going to find, you're going to get an answer. And I mean, it does help that they drafted Grady Dick. It does help that Otto Porter Jr.'s toe has been found and is back in its location. So that's more shooting, at least off the bench, than they had a year ago. Yep. See how they manage the rotation. I and go ahead. And I was going to say, and just as a Raptors Republic subscriber, my interest is in there being good content. So I think sometimes bad basketball can also provide good content. And if nothing else, if they do find answers, that's going to provide some really cool content. So it's win-win for me. I got to write a piece that where I went back and looked at articles written, I think it was 1953, like the worst, one of the worst shooting games of all time. And I got to write that um, and kind of like correlate it to the Raptors game that they had just played. This was in 2021-22. And if I had covered another team, I wouldn't have gotten to write that article or looked back on it. Um, yeah, I, I am very excited to watch Grady and Scotty grow together. I think Grady is – people, you know, there was a lot of chatter after his first game. Everyone's like, he's stiff, he's not good. We saw the Twitter chatter. They're like, oh, yeah, he's cooked. The, he's the he's a little things king and not in the way that we've seen the Raptors a lot of the like wingy guys they've drafted are little things kings who can't shoot but Grady is a little things king who can shoot and that's a super big deal especially playing off of a passer as good as Scotty Barnes I can't wait to see how though that two-man game grows together because whether or not Scotty ends up being like this all NBA initiator who does like all these great things and starts to emulate a bunch of the best wings we've seen, 
or whether he, you know, it's a little bit more, it's a little bit lower of an outcome than that. Uh, he's going to pair with Grady wonderfully. And so that'll be like one of the things I'm looking forward to most this year. But Grady's a rookie, a 13th overall pick. You should never bet on those guys to change like the win loss columns or the like big jumps in offensive rating in year one. Grady's going to be great, but um, the seeds of that relationship, that partnership, I think is something I'll be looking forward to a ton because they, though that's a couple um, skill sets that are quite harmonious that I, I can't wait to see how it manifests. All right. Time to say goodbye. Uh, Caitlin, any parting shots? I mean, I will say that I really did enjoy some of the Grady Dick moments in the second quarter against the Pistons. He had one play that was just really quiet where he just grabbed the ball off the glass and pushed it in transition and went right to left and then used his left hand to push ahead a pass to the opposite side. Ron Harper Jr. That's something. I remember that play. I mean, and I wrote about him because he was one of the four people that the Pacers gave solo workouts to, and I didn't even write about his shooting. I just wrote about the way that he would make reads out of the corner and be able to read the next chain. So, like, if if the guy at the 45 sinks to the corner, he could make a pass with his left hand to the 45. And as somebody who watches Benedict Mathern play a lot, that's not nothing. That That's something. <laughs> so, a topic for another day. But, um, yeah, just as parting shots and goodbyes, I won't embarrass Samson again because he doesn't like when I do it. <laughs> but um, subscribe to Raptors Republic. I do think it matters to support independent journalism where you can. I know that this business is hard, and it's hard in ways that get publicly seen and ways that – aren't seen to everybody. So um, I enjoy it. I read it. I think everybody else should do that too. I won't tout his work. I won't say how good I think he is at things. If you read it, you'll know that yourself. So I'm not going to embarrass him and make him squirm around today. And for anybody who's wondering about like, hey, Caitlin writes for, you know, writes about the Pacers and Pascal is rumored to the Pacers. We don't care about any of that. It's all just hearsay. If it Look happens, how objective it I was. I could have been trying to get Pascal off this team, and I was looking for reasons to make it work. Yeah. Very, very diligent of you. If you're interested in basketball coverage, learning more about the game from anybody, Caitlin Cooper, patron, it will be linked. Um, the best doing it. Trey, any thoughts before we get out of here? Um, I'm just blessed to be around two of the best who do it. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Okay. Um, for everybody listening at home, I hope you enjoyed it. I know there's going to be a lot of people who disliked this podcast because of the pessimistic tone of it, but I hope you realize that we were talking about real basketball actions very specifically. So even if we end up being wrong, at least we're talking about the game, the game, the game. Um, I hope I'm wrong. I'll say that. I genuinely hope I do. I hope it, I'm wrong. It would if the Raptors can make it into like the top two thirds as a half court offense, they're doing something incredibly well. And they've like found something because their defense will be very good. Um, I'd love to be wrong. I'd jeez, it would be so awesome. But yeah, I hope people appreciate that, even though it is pessimistic. We're talking about real film, the things we've seen, and talking about the numbers that surround them too. We're doing our best. Everyone here has watched a ton of it, trying to contextualize it and talking about what we see the game like. And so it's not meant as distaste or dislike or anything like that. It's just basketball. To everybody who enjoyed this, thanks for tuning in. And whether you got into this in the morning or at night, have a blessed day and goodbye.